Hello and welcome to episode number 198 of Turkey Book Talk. Thank you for listening. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. Remember to follow Turkey Book Talk over at Twitter, Instagram or Facebook. In this episode, we speak to Shebnem Gümüşçü, an associate professor of political science at Middlebury College and the author of Democracy or Authoritarianism, Islamist Governments in Turkey, Egypt and Tunisia, published by Cambridge University Press. The book is based on extensive research and interviews with key players in Islamist parties in all those countries, and it makes the case that intra-party factional struggles are key in shaping whether those parties move in a democratic or authoritarian direction. Some commentators argue that Islamist parties are essentially anti-democratic and monolithic, using the trajectory of Erdogan's AKP in Turkey as key evidence for that. The AKP is now, of course, basically a one-man show where Erdogan is the boss and makes all the major decisions. This book, however, shows that there was nothing inevitable about that result. If different factions with different approaches had gained more power in the party early on, the story could have been quite different. Shebnem Gumistu also argues that similar factional processes shaped different outcomes in Tunisia and Egypt. This is Turkey Book Talk, so we go into most detail on the Turkish case in our conversation. But before we get started, let me appeal once again. This podcast does take a lot of time and effort to prepare, edit and piece together. And I do need listener support, your support to be able to keep doing it. We've published almost 200 episodes now, giving a platform to researchers and authors of books related to Turkish history, politics, society, literature and the arts. It's incredibly rewarding to put the podcast together and publish an episode every couple of weeks. And I sincerely hope it remains useful for everyone who listens. Turkey Book Talk is completely independent with no institutional links, no sponsorships. It depends 100% on the goodwill of listeners like you. So if you are in a position where you can support, please consider doing so via Patreon. Consider becoming a Turkey Book Talk member. Joining as a Turkey Book Talk member isn't just a nice thing to do, it also gets you some pretty good extras. Those extras include a terrific discount of 35% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman history series. Hundreds of Turkey Ottoman history titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury are available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 35% discount. As a member, you get a special code to use at the online checkout and that deal can be used to purchase physical books, pre-orders or e-books. Turkey Book Talk members also receive a PDF transcript of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including a number of extras that have not previously been published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of 231 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, in addition to all that, I send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of the episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is ideal if you want to delve a bit deeper. To become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, €3, or £2.50 per episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3, €3, or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. It's inflation-proof and there are no prior commitments or strings attached, you'll be free to sign off whenever you want. 
But now on to our conversation with Shebnem Gumishchu. We started by linking the themes of her work to Turkey's recent presidential and parliamentary elections. Following those elections, we saw many comments suggesting that nationalism, even ultra-nationalism, is the rising trend in Turkish politics and society, while religion and Islamism is actually declining. So my first question to Shebnem Gumishchu was, does she agree with such assessments? I think it's it's a bit more complicated because many things happened before this election and I think some of these key developments led to a very interesting and and complex outcome. On the one hand we have an unchanging a very solid support for Erdogan, right? So uh, if this was a moment for decline of, of political Islam, then we would definitely see him lose elections and did, that did not happen. But we also know that his party, AKP, lost quite a bit of seats and vote share in the uh, parliamentary elections. And many of those votes seem to go to maybe smaller Islamist parties, which again tells us that maybe political Islam is not just passe. But a big bunch of, of those uh, people who did not want to vote for, for Erdogan's party, they voted for more nationalist parties. And of course, there is also the third candidate in the presidential elections that captured 5% of the votes. And that was basically uh, a very much a nationalist leader trying to put forward a, a Turkish nationalist agenda. So... At the surface level, yes, I agree that nationalism seems to be on the rise, but this does not necessarily mean that there is some kind of rivalry between political Islam and nationalism in Turkey. Indeed, Erdogan has accomplished a significant synthesis of sorts of Turkish nationalism and, and political Islam in the past several years, thanks to his partnership with the MHP. So I really do not see a lot of contention or conflict there. But... Maybe there are two things that indeed complicate the picture for both Erdogan and his party. And one key factor was indeed the economic situation and the fact that especially at the local level, there's a lot of corruption that many people observe among the ranks of the AKP. So there is some discontent with the party itself, not necessarily its ideology, but definitely the way things are conducted at the local level in particular. And of course, the political economic circumstances, right? So the people who have been voting for Erdogan for a long time, they are somewhat disillusioned, but they also see no alternative to Erdogan's leadership. So what they do, because they also do not trust the opposition candidate Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, they do not vote for Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu. They want to remain within the People's Alliance. They end up voting for Erdogan at the presidential uh, level in the presidential elections. And then they go for more nationalist parties, especially MHP, in the parliamentary uh, elections because they don't want to vote for AKP for a number of reasons. So here we have a very interesting within alliance shifts away from AKP and towards MHP, not because these people want a, a more nationalist government, they already find that nationalist government in Erdogan's leadership, but they want to express their disillusionment and grievances with the existing policies without necessarily defecting Erdogan. Thematically related to this, there have been a number of public opinion polls about social attitudes in recent years that have suggested that religious sentiment is actually declining. But as we're saying, their nationalist sentiment is still strong. 
and particularly drilling down into that among young people nationalism seems to be the rising trend so you just have to watch like babala tv you know this wildly popular youtube channel in recent years to get a glimpse of that rising trend something completely different that's emerging so in terms of future generations if you look at that trend you might say that it's not religion it's not liberalism it's not socialism but it's nationalism that really connects and that really presses the buttons i mean looking at those younger generations do you agree with that sentiment and if so how is that going to affect the the coming years and also why do you think that is the case that's a good point so i definitely agree that there are certain uh, demographic groups within akp supporters or erdogan supporters and uh, they vote for erdogan for a number of different reasons and when we look at who among the turkish electorate are the strongest supporters of erdogan we definitely see older generations less educated especially women who do not work outside of home so we have a, a certain demographic keys to typical erdogan supporters and we also know the younger generations at least some of them do not support erdogan especially if they're uh, highly educated so there is definitely that sentiment that we observe among the younger people who turn to nationalism more and more and maybe another conjectural factor here that we need to highlight it's not just the economy and an economic disillusionment especially among the younger people who seek a better life greater resources greater opportunities better education better job prospects and they cannot find them in turkey many of them want to leave the country for that reason and then we also have a huge migration problem and crisis that is also a key issue for the younger generation so we definitely see that rise of national sentiments among the younger people for economic but also for demographic political reasons that are triggered by the migration trends in the country so i agree that especially for younger folks this seems to be a, a quite appealing alternative and an outlet for the agreements but their overall share in the voting uh, population is not as great at least now to break the dominant alliance that mhp and akp hold and establish right now but the future seems to be pretty much in their favor not economically or or maybe politically but but definitely in terms of changing the weight of ideological trends in the country away from political islam and and towards more nationalist sentiments and and perhaps when we look at the government and especially the the elite in the uh, government we hear a lot of concerns that they have about increasing trends of deism atheism so there's there's significant concern on the part of the government and every single political decision with respect to education policies or social policies cultural policies are indeed informed by that concern that the younger generations and folks do not necessarily share that islamist sentiments and islamist ideology as the government wants them to and so in the short term we might see them taking some steps to really try to push that agenda at least in the next 5 years the term of this parliament because one thing that a lot of people agree is that this is the most right wing parliament in decades and that's partly due to the fact that the AKP teamed up before the election with the uh, Yeniden Refah Party the new welfare party and the uh, Hudapar the Kurdish Islamist party these are hardline right wing religious parties and basically they were brought into the tent by the AKP and obviously they're now going to have an influence in the coming years so you know regardless of these longer term social trends that we might be talking about 
there is going to be pressure from these parties at the government level over the next five years. And of course, there's also this anxiety within the AKP, within Erdogan himself as well, actually, about trying to basically socially engineer to achieve the aims that he's been pursuing for the last couple of decades. So with the inf- with that anxiety and with the influence of these smaller parties really gaining traction, the argument is that, you know, we're probably going to see that reflected in a further intensification of conservative social policy, crackdown on LGBT people, and this obvious emphasis on traditional family roles and conservative social policy. So at least in the short term, in the next five years, that looks like it's going to define the agenda. Absolutely. So uh, this was already the trend that we observed in the past decade, especially with Dianet's role changing and Dianet becoming a prominent actor and having presence in all aspects of life from primary school to everyday marriage affairs. There is a, a growing role and, and space for Dianet. And this particular parliament, as you mentioned, now includes more hegemonic Islamist voices that want to socially engineer the Turkish society in a more explicitly Islamic direction. So AKP and Erdogan was already on that path. And with this particular partnership, he is carrying it to another level. And it's it's very much reasonable to expect that we will see more conservative uh, policies coming from this particular parliament supported by the government. And we will see a lot more pressure on family, keeping families intact, maybe bankrolling some of the rights that women had for several decades now, especially when it comes to divorce, child custody. We will see a lot of changes. Some of them definitely passed. And we will see a lot of pressure for LGBTQ people. Those will be the key areas that the government will will pursue Islamization going forward. Now, turning to your book and connecting some of these themes to the research in the book, you trace the trajectory of Islamist parties in Turkey and also Tunisia and Egypt. And you argue in the book fundamentally that Islamism is not this one-size-fits-all ideology or party program. And it can actually mean different things at different times, in different contexts. It's not an essential thing, basically. You write, quote, All political parties, including Islamists, host a diversity of opinions and preferences. Party behavior in a particular instance is not the only rational choice the actors could make under given circumstances, but a product of internal coalition building efforts of different factions. This implies that a party's response to the exact same stimulus can be completely different according to different factions. So the argument there is that internal dynamics within parties, in other words, which factions have more power or authority at different times, are more important than the external forces or developments that are exerting themselves on Islamist parties. And you, in the Turkish case, ultimately argue that Turkish democracy collapsed not because Islamists were in power, but because liberal Islamists within the party lost the power struggle against what you call the electoralists. And the electoralists are these kind of more hardline, less flexible figures. So could you open up this argument for us? What did you mean by that? Yes, so we had a lot of essentialist accounts that indeed treated Islamist parties as autocratic entities for a while, right? So before even AKP came to power or Muslim Brotherhood came to power in Egypt or Ennahda came to power in Tunisia, there were significant scholars who argued or analysts argued that Islamists at the core of their essence are autocratic. But that was an untested claim. And only with these parties coming to power, we could at least test those claims and, and make sure that they had an unchanging fixed, right? Fixed essence. 
So the argument, the essentialist argument actually is inaccurate when you study different political parties with Islamist ideologies coming to power and, and study their democratic commitments. So AKP, for example, when the party came to power in 2002, had a very, when you read the AKP's program, had a very liberal democratic orientation. It embraced pluralism, political pluralism, mutual tolerance, human rights, and, and liberal democratic norms. The same is, is the case with Ennahda. After coming to power in Tunisia, they made a very explicit commitment to liberal democratic norms, pluralism, and whatnot. Muslim Brotherhood, in contrast, had a more majoritarian understanding of democracy and they had a, a more sense of righteousness that they brought to power when, when Mohammed Musi was elected as the president. So when you look at this variation across cases, but also variation across time in the case of AKP, we actually see that Islamist parties indeed change in their commitments to democracy over time and across space. So, and not in Tunisia show a very different trajectory than uh, Muslim Brotherhood in, in Egypt. And also AKP had a very different trajectory in the very first term in power and then the second and the third terms. So we see this variation in Islamists' commitment to democracy. And when you unpack the party organization, you indeed see significant disagreement within. So it's really quite inaccurate and misleading to claim that Islamist parties actually have a one singular ideology and understanding of democracy. And that democratic understanding is quite non-democratic, right? So their political uh, trajectory or ideology is quite autocratic. So that is not accurate, empirically accurate, when you study these different organizations and compare and contrast their experiences across time and space. So what is happening then? What what did I find in my own research, looking at all three cases, but also studying their trajectories over time in all three countries? I find a lot of complexity. And that major complexity is indeed coming from factional politics within each party organization. So Ennahda, Muslim Brotherhood, and, and AKP, irrespective of the dominant strategy that each party adopts in power, they have significant disagreements within the party organization. So there is no monolithic ideology. There is no monolithic politics that we observe in these cases. There is significant disagreement and discussion and debate and power struggle in every single party organization. And this is not really unique to Islamist parties for that matter, right? So although the book is, is looking at Islamist parties, this is really not just about Islamists, but this is the case for all political parties. So that's maybe one of the key findings of the book, that Islamist parties are just like any other political party. They're factionalized and different factions have different understanding of politics. In this particular instance, I'm looking at democratic commitments and how different factions perceive democracy. Some factions are, are have more liberal pluralist orientation. Other factions are, are more majoritarian and populist in their orientation and understanding of democracy. So in each of these cases, especially in the Turkish case, we have a struggle of power among different wings in the party. And whichever faction commands greater resources, come on top, they dominate the party, they capture the party, and then they set the course for the party. So if it was the liberal, more pluralist voices and, and wing in the AKP that prevailed at the end, then we would see a very different AKP today. Yeah, the book includes these fascinating details on the factional divides in the early years of the AKP. It's kind of all been forgotten now. It seems like so long ago, but 
you go into that in great detail and it's fascinating to read it once again. And you write that at the time of its establishment, the AKP was a coalition of two separate reformist wings among the Islamist cadres. And you call those the Ankara group and the Istanbul group. And the difference between these two groups grew over the years. But initially, at least the Ankara group, as you call it, was the group with more experience in parliament. And it had a more kind of collaborative leadership with Abdullah Gül, particularly sort of leading that group, and also Bülent Arinç, who's still on the scene these days, kind of heading it and sharing their power with figures such as Abdul Latif Shener, who's also been in the headlines recently, but for other reasons. Now, these figures were much more keen to emphasize values such as pluralism, freedom of expression, freedom of information, the rule of law, emphasizing the EU membership goal and intra-party democracy. And the Istanbul group, in contrast, was more experienced in like local governance than party politics in Ankara. And it was led by Erdogan, obviously somebody who came up from the kind of local government grassroots in Istanbul. And this was seen as a more hardline group, even at the time, you know, these debates were being had. And this group that was led by Erdogan, this faction, was always seen as more hardline. It wavered between this commitment to liberalism according to the official party policy, but also a more hardline electoralist stance that was a bit more suspicious of Gül's group's emphasis on uh, some of these values that we're talking about before. And this hardline group led by Erdogan, the Istanbul group, over time managed basically to secure power step by step over the years and basically seize control of the party. So the party was a much more collaborative party with different wings representing, you know, different perspectives. And obviously over time it became a much more hardline Erdogan focused party with a particular kind of worldview associated with that. So could you just go into that, that divide? At the time, was it debated in these terms? Was it widely seen as there being these two groups who, you know, represented these different things? And, you know, how did that process happen over subsequent years where Erdogan gradually elbowed out these uh, more accommodating, perhaps less hardline figures within the party and managed to basically stamp it with his own authority and turn it essentially into a one man show? Sure. So at the very beginning, we indeed see these two separate wings that are trying to come together and, and build a political party, a new political party, and they're leaving the Miligurish ideology behind. And in my interviews, one key finding that I, I, I discovered was that indeed it was the Ankara group who uh, had the idea of establishing Justice and Development Party or AKP. And they invited Erdogan to the party. It was not Erdogan's initiative. It was actually Ankara Group's initiative who ended up reaching out to Erdogan and, and, and inviting him to this new initiative. So that is how the AKP indeed became a reality. And the uh, Ankara Group indeed wrote the party platform and they came up with the party bylaws. And both party platform and party bylaws were quite democratic in orientation, had significant safeguards against an oligarchic leadership or one-man rule that could happen in the future because they were very, very much concerned of Erbakan's oligarchic leadership in the past and they wanted to make sure that their party would not become another welfare party, another virtue party. So they took a lot of precautions in the party bylaws, making sure that every single 
position in the party was a, a, an elected position. It would not be the party leader that would appoint individual uh, people to important positions or even not so important positions. They made sure that every single MP to be elected to the parliament would be elected through primaries. They made sure that internal mechanisms of, of checks and balances within the party would be enshrined. So there were a lot of concern on the part of the Ankara uh, group, Ankara faction, to make sure that the party would have that pluralist essence going forward. And they pretty much succeeded in the first term. And we may remember some key examples that showed us that plurality within the party, that, that sense of democratic deliberation within the party, but also working together with the opposition in key uh, aspects. I want to give two key examples here. One example comes from the March 2003 Parliament's vote against cooperating and working together with the United States in its invasion of Iraq. So that was a huge pushback against Erdogan's desire to pull Turkey into that war. So Erdogan clearly wanted Turkey to to be in that uh, coalition and his own party rejected the motion. So that was a very interesting manifestation of how the AKP at the time was still a very much a pluralist space where different ideas, different positions could come together and make a decision. And another maybe a manifestation of that pluralism and especially the power and presence of, of more liberal wings in the party was the EU reform process itself, EU accession process itself. And a key part of that was, was Erdogan's desire to turn adultery into or criminalize adultery. That was a huge discussion. Many people probably forget about it. Uh, talk about it a bit in, in the book. And this was an interesting moment where we see more liberal democratic voices in the party basically telling Erdogan that this is not acceptable. He cannot criminalize adultery and this is not going to be in line with the party's politics or with the Turkish goals to become a member of the European Union. So in all of these key moments, we see, and we will see a little bit more divergence later on, especially in the second and the third term of the party, we see the Ankara faction and Istanbul faction becoming more and more separate, more and more consolidated, and having their disagreements showing up in very different ways. How is it then Then Erdogan ended up taking over the party, capturing the party, despite the fact that the party was Ankara faction's idea to begin with, and uh, he was invited to this initiative. And the party platform and the bylaws were all written and, and prepared by the Ankara group. There are lots of interesting moments where things change. So when you accumulate all of these tiny bits of changes that Erdogan ended up making, you actually see a huge wave of change that, that comes later in the party. So I explained that entire process through organizational resources. Political parties are organizations and they have key resources. So what are those resources? We have the party rules, party bylaws that I just described. Then we have party finance that is really key in building incentive structures. Then we have internal communication channels that are really important in building coalitions within the party, especially among the rank and file. And we also have some other resources that may play an important role in building further coalitions and uh, setting the course of, of the party. So here we see Erdogan, especially recruitment and promotion, I want to highlight that. So we see Erdogan basically capturing these resources one after another through key changes, maybe minor changes at first and then bigger changes later on. 
and he starts to build a very intricate incentive structures using party finance, recruitment and promotion channels, changing party bylaws and rules, and also uh, using internal communication. Later, we will see also national media playing an important role there. So all of these resources accumulating in his hands start to lead to significant shift of power away from Ankara faction and towards Istanbul faction. Recruitment and promotion is a key example here. Let me uh, explain that a bit. Consider at the time Turkey was a parliamentary system and we had the, the parliament lists, election lists, and every single name on AKP's electoral lists started to be determined by Erdogan by 2011. He already captured the party's electoral lists back in 2007, but he still consulted with maybe a few key figures, whom to include, whom to exclude. But even back in 2007, he had significant control. How do we know that he had significant control? We know every single person, maybe except for Bülent Arınç, who defected from party leadership decision in the March 2003 motion to support United States in Iraq, invasion of Iraq, every single person who was vocal about that decision, against that decision, they were taken off the lists in 2007. So Erdogan was so eager to make sure that he would have a very disciplined party with no internal defection and make sure that every single person in the party list will follow his comments to the T. So we have that party electoral lists playing a very important role in increasing Erdogan's power in 2007, later in 2011, and, and of course later as well. We also have, for example, other recruitment and, and promotion channels that give a lot of power to Erdogan, especially within the party itself. So now we have internal elections completely replaced by Erdogan's top-down appointment channels because he changed the party rules. And you can ask, like, you know, how did he manage to change the party rules? It was really interesting, all these contingent moments where a, a tiny change at the very beginning in, in 2003 and 2004 ended up changing the entire structure of the party organization later on. It's it's really interesting story because Erdogan basically created an excuse to make sure that the central decision makers and central organs of the party would not have any MPs coming from the virtue party listed as the party founders. Because he said, this is not going to be a good idea. The constitutional court can see then the AKP as continuation of the virtue party and then can shut, shut it down. So this was a very reasonable argument at the time. And many people agreed that this was a good idea. But what happened at the end, with this very tiny change, Erdogan easily sidelined the entire party founding members that were coming from the Virtue Party in the party's central organs. So this is how, how things change really in an interesting fashion. And all of these bits and pieces of changes add up to a, a higher order change later on, as we see in 2007, 2011 and, and whatnot. So this is pretty much how resources accumulate in very different way ways, in very different fashion, and then end up empowering one faction over another. Maybe one final example or resource is indeed party finance. And I want to highlight that because it was really interesting to find out 
during my interviews that Erdogan all along had significant control over party finance. He, he already had private funds that he accessed, perhaps from, you know, his position as the mayor of Istanbul, perhaps with some external support coming from different channels. We don't know. But, uh, we know now that when the AKP was established, Erdogan was in charge of party finance. He had that external support coming from different channels and he paid every single financial need of the party. So that is all of these different resources accumulating in his hands one after another, give him so much power that now he controls every single recruitment promotion channel. He controls party rules. He controls party lists. He controls local channels and branches. He controls party finance and allocation of those resources. And with those resources, he creates an intricate incentive structure to build alliances and coalitions within the party to sideline his opponents and his rivals and empower his supporters within the party ranks. With those moves, we see him pretty much capturing the party and establishing his own dominance over the party organization. And then the AKP becomes Erdogan's party, for sure. So we've narrated there basically an internal power struggle where Erdogan, over time, ruthlessly kind of elbowed his rivals within the party out the way. So it's very much an internal story about internal dynamics within the party. But shouldn't we also talk a bit about external factors? Because some of those, it seems, were quite key. At key moments, they had an effect on the direction that the party ended up going in and why Erdogan's faction became more powerful over time. It kind of legitimized them in a way. So there were key electoral challenges that they faced, uh, corruption cases, popular protests, a lot of challenges that they were facing that ultimately prompted, in a way, the party to become a more hardline, hawkish party, basically in line with what Erdogan had said all along. So there were these external factors that were also exerting an influence and basically nudging the party in a particular direction that helped Erdogan you know, he was already in a strong position within the party. And these external factors actually helped him consolidate that control as well. Yes and no. <laughs> so indeed, all of these external factors and circumstances play an important role. But they're all, at the end of the day, filtered through intra-party struggles. So whatever external impetus or circumstance an Islamist party face, says it at the end of the day, boils down to who is in charge of the party. Because when you are facing a particular challenge from the outside, each faction will come with a different strategy they think is the best for the party going forward. So uh, think about the Gezi Park protest in 2013. So when that started, there were two very different understandings or, or, or meanings attached to those protests, right? So on the one hand, we had Erdogan, adopting a very hawkish stance, basically seeing Gezi Park protests as a very severe, serious challenge and threat to his power. And then we had a very different understanding of the protests as legitimate acts on the part of the Turkish citizens and protesters coming from Abdullah Gül, who was the president at the time, or even Bülent Arınç, who was the speaker of the uh, cabinet at the time. Bülent Arınç, many people may remember, indeed apologized in a press conference for police's excessive force against protesters. So how can you make sense of these two different perceptions or responses to the same external impetus then? 
I want to be wary about this linear causal arrow that we readily draw from external factors to party behavior. And I want to put the intra-party struggles right in between as a, as a filter. So when you have these protests pushing against the party's power, you have the liberal factions basically taking those protests as, okay, this is, this is a message that our people are sending us. So let's engage with the protesters and respond to their demands. Let's see what we can do together, how we can work together. And then we have Erdogan having a very different reaction, basically seeing this as a, as a basic major threat that needs to be extinguished and then taking revenge off, right? So there's all these very interesting reactions coming from different factions. So it would be really hard to say these external circumstances pushed the party in a particular direction. Indeed, these external factors actually push each faction in different directions and depending on their power and their ability, then they can push the party in their different directions. At the time, Erdogan was on top. He had a lot of power at his disposal and he thought these uh, external threats were really needed to be dismantled. So he used his power in the party to set a very hawkish trajectory for the AKP and, and set the course towards authoritarianism. So if it was a more lenient, more liberal, more pluralist faction at the helm of the party, then we would have a very different reaction. And indeed, we have seen the glimpses of that reaction from different figures that had power at the time. Another example would be, you know, from the corruption cases, you may also remember when the corruption scandal erupted in late 2013, Ahmed Davutoglu, for example, who would take on the leadership of the party, indeed was sympathetic to those, you know, uh, calls for investigating the corruption scandal. And he wanted to push for greater transparency in, in the party. So he was coming from a different uh, faction, obviously. And he wanted to take the party in a different trajectory, in a different direction, but he didn't have enough power. He tried and he failed and, and he could not pull the party in a different direction where there would be greater anti-corruption sentiments, greater transparency and accountability for, for corrupt practices in the party, but also at the government level. Now, some of the lessons and examples from your book can actually be applied beyond Turkey, but also beyond the case of Islamist parties. And it seemed to me that uh, it's interesting that we can compare some of the lessons about interfactional or interparty factional dynamics and struggles to cases in the West. So you talk about how your work can offer key insights into party capture by populist factions in recent years and why and how non-populist factions are losing their grip on their parties and more authoritarian tendencies are prevailing. So obviously we can think of examples of this in Europe where you're seeing traditional center-right conservative parties being taken over in some cases by either within them within the parties themselves or obviously by populist challengers in separate parties. In the UK, for example, the Conservative Party has also experienced something similar where, you know, there are populist factions within it who have basically taken over. The other case would be the Republicans, of course, in the US, where those traditional Republican establishments have basically been swept aside by Trump and the more populist wing of the party. So could you just reflect a bit on that, you know, how the argument that you make in the book could be applied to some of these other cases in Europe and in the US? Absolutely. So 
definitely this is not a story about Islamist parties. It is, but there is also uh, a lot we can carry over to other political parties. And especially now with the rise of right-wing religious populist factions all around the world, not just in Europe, but, but the United States, but also in other prominent established democracies like Brazil, India. So we have this rise of right-wing populist factions that are challenging a more liberal democratic understanding of democracy, and they are pushing back against these norms. So in order to understand what's going on in multiple different contexts where democracy is threatened, we need to understand party politics, and we need to unpack these organizations. We need to take a look at these established parties or the rise of right-wing populist parties. We need to see how factions become engines of change. Sometimes they push their parties in, in a more progressive uh, direction. Sometimes they take their parties in a more regressive direction and, and, and more authoritarian direction. We have to understand, for example, how the Tea Party or Berthists, in the United States, for instance, established resources, captured key resources like media, especially with the rise of social media, and also financial resources that they muster from very different lobbies and, and, and organizations. All of these resources, bottom-up, actually empowering certain factions that do not necessarily believe in liberal norms and pluralism, and gradually over time, they can capture, successfully capture established parties. And once they capture these parties, and if they come to power, now they become an important threat to democracy and democratic institutions. So in order to understand what's going on in different in different contexts and, and how political parties actually change over time, how they change their ideological commitments, democratic commitments, how they even change their other policies, we need to look at factional level. We need to find that spot where things really happen. Because if we make the mistake that parties are monolithic entities and they respond to their external environments and external circumstances, like, like very automatically, like a robotic fashion, that's, that's a huge mistake, an empirical theoretical mistake that we make. Instead, we need to unpack these organizations and try to understand these factional struggles and how factions indeed serve as engines of change in the uh, party organizations. So going back to the GOP's example, this is exactly what happened over the past maybe 40 years with more radical, uncompromising factions starting at the fringes of the party organization, basically vilifying Democrats and shutting down every single compromise that Republican Party and Republican leaders could make with the Democratic leaders. So there is a lot of accumulation going on and happening in the past 40 years, but eventually they start to capture resources and uh, start building alliances with different groups co-opting maybe their you know rivals or working together with with potential allies within the party enlarging their sphere of influence and power and then they capture the party at the end that's exactly what happened in the GOP over the 40 years past 40 years so we need to understand that this is not just about Islamist parties this is about any political party and political parties are really key in democratic politics if we do not understand intra-party struggles and how these resources are accumulated and captured by different factions then we really do not understand the democratic politics at the end of the day that was Shebnem Gumishchu. Many thanks to her for joining for episode 198. 
please remember we do need your support to keep Turkey Book Talk going and you can give that support by joining as a Turkey Book Talk member on Patreon. Membership gets you a 35% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, 3 euros or £2.50 per episode. Do also rate the podcast or write a positive review wherever you listen. Follow via our website, turkeybooktalk.com, our Twitter, Facebook or Instagram accounts or all of them. Recommend Turkey Book Talk to a friend or a foe and I I always enjoy hearing from listeners so do send any feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. Finally, let me once again remind you to check out a friend of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is a weekly email newsletter that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. They've got a Slack channel for signed up members who want more and they also publish high quality original on the ground reporting. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow all the links there to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.